There's some industries where 10 years time is the next product cycle. There's some industries where you know what your rent's going to be in 10 years time. There's other technology, 10 years is right on the edge of science fiction. You really don't know what, you know, anything beyond 10 years, you really don't know what's going to happen. Except there'll be more stuff. Ready. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. Since coming back as a host, I want a global perspective of what is going on in the technology industry. With me today is Benedict Evans, current venture partner of Mosaic Ventures and entrepreneur first and an independent analyst who I read his newsletters as a subscriber every week. Hi, Benedict. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yes, we are all in the lockdown for the last one and a half to two years since your conversation with Carol last year. What have you been up to? Oh, all sorts of things. I remember quite when we spoke. I spent six years in Silicon Valley at Andreessen Horowitz, which is a big venture capital firm. Then at the beginning of last year, I moved back to London to do my own thing. I do various different projects. I work with a couple of companies helping them understand what's going on, them helping me understand what's going on. I do a newsletter and a bunch of speaking. I, I do what I've always been doing, which is talk about stuff on the internet and try and get paid for it. I suppose the other way of answering the question, though, is that if you're trying to analyze technology, the question is always to try and work out what are the questions. If you are an oils analyst or a utilities analyst or you analyze the aircraft industry, your questions don't change that much from decade to decade. Questions for Boeing today are not very different from the questions for Boeing 20 years ago. Whereas in technology, the moment you really understand something is generally the point that it's time to stop paying attention to it and try and think about something else. It would not be a good thing if you were still analyzing mainframes today or on-prem data centers or smartphones. I started my career as a mobile analyst. I looked, spent a lot of time looking at smartphones and smartphones are boring now. They happened. Five billion people have got a smartphone, give or take. And well, what's the next question? The funny thing about the whole app store thing in the last 18 months, these are basically all arguments that we had in 2011. Nothing's changed. I could just take the stuff I wrote in 2011 and run it again. Like those are the issues are all the same. Um, it's like it's like kind of something that's come back from the past. Meanwhile, what does everybody in Silicon Valley spend their time thinking about? Well, it's not smartphones and app stores anymore. It's what's next. I want to talk to you about tech, what I call technology history lessons and thinking about something that you've written recently that really resonated with me, thinking about mainframes, machine learning, and digital transformation. You have a background in history. So my first question to you, what are the key lessons you have drawn from the subject matter? How does it frame your perspectives into looking at technology history lessons and trends happening maybe from the past decade to today, while you alluded to it, like asking questions. Asking How can I put it? There's a line from Voltaire where he says that if all you can tell us is that one group of barbarians defeated another somewhere in Central Asia, who cares? You said it a little bit more complicated formation than that, but that was the question. All you can tell us is that X and Y happened, who cares? The challenge in history is to try and explain and understand and to say, how could we think about this and how could we know what's happening? So first you have to actually understand what did happen, who won and why. But secondly, you have to say, what are the fundamental trends that are going on here? There's always this formulation. People talk about history and they say, imagine if Gavrilo Prince hadn't shot Franz Ferdinand at Sarajevo in 1914, how different would the world be? Actually, a historian would say no different at all because something else, another war would have broken out again three months later. Imagine if the messenger of Waterloo had brought Napoleon's other army to the field six hours earlier. What would have happened? Then there'd have been another battle two months later and Napoleon would still have lost for the sake of argument. You have to ask, well, what are the actual fundamental trends? Why this is happening? Why that was going to happen or not happen? What are the kind of pivot points and the decision points? And if you were to do that, well, that work. I used to do that as a telecoms analyst and I did that as a mobile analyst and looking at, at startups, but that's the thought process is always the same. You have to understand what the facts are up to a point and know which facts you need to understand. But you also need to say, what is this telling us? How should we understand this? 
looking at technology history lessons and trends that happened from the past decade to today, the most interesting question to me, we passed a decade since the beginning of Apple's iOS and Google's Android. So there was a time where some analysts argued that Google's Android strategy will subsume Apple because of what happened during the mm. Windows and Intel. Because of that, Apple will be doomed based on past history. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. The answer turned out to be quite different. Uh, I remember reading all your articles and listening to you talking on podcasts. What did the analysts get wrong? What does history taught us about what Apple did in order to advert their fate. Trevor Roper said history teaches us nothing except that something will happen. There's a neat thesis that says that the Bolsheviks in Russia in the 20s were obsessed with history, but obviously because Marxist historical materialism was all about history. And so they looked at kind of Napoleon, they were terrified of another Napoleon. They looked at Trotsky and said, well, this, this is another Napoleon and we need to make sure this doesn't happen. Meanwhile, this nice, safe, solid bureaucrat in the back of his called, um, Joseph Stalin, he wasn't a threat. Of course, he ended up shooting them all. You can over-index on drawing the wrong lesson. There's a story, King of Lydia, say 500, probably 600 BC, went to an oracle and said, should I go and make war in Persia? And the oracle said, if you make war, a great empire will be destroyed. He thought, great, except that he didn't realize which empire the oracle was talking about. You have to think about, A, what level of abstraction you're going to learn from, and B, much more particularly, what level of abstraction do you mean when you say things like open wins? Because when I look at iOS and I say, there's a billion people using this, maybe more, over a billion people are using this, and there's several million apps. There's more software being downloaded and installed in all previous platforms combined and more money being spent with developers in all previous platforms combined. So what is it that you mean when you say this is closed? Equally, if you go back and say, oh, Wintel won because it was open. So what exactly is it about Windows that you say was open in a way that iOS isn't open? What is it about Intel that you think was open in a way that this isn't open? I think the layers of abstraction there are really interesting because there's two parts to this. So there's a layer of abstraction, which layer should be open? And then what does the market actually want, which is I should come back to. But if you look back to the 80s, you had this very small market, objectively. Even in 95, there were about less than 100 million PCs on Earth. So it was a small industry compared to today's technology industry. What Microsoft and Intel were able to do was to create this much broader ecosystem of, event, at the time, dozens, maybe even hundreds of OEMs making PCs and people making software. But they ended up with this platform that was open at the right layers. So you had a standard CPU and a standard operating system. The stuff between the CPU and the operating system had lots of competition and the stuff above the operating system with Opal and lots of competition. But you had these two standardized layers. The reason that Apple fucked up was that they tried to do everything below the operating system themselves. They weren't making CPU, but they picked a smaller subscale CPU platform. They tried to design the whole hardware thing in themselves. That was a mistake because they just didn't have the scale to do that. They were locked out of all the economies of scale in the industry. Meanwhile, because Microsoft was able to scale with so many OEMs making so many different PCs, that meant they had a much bigger install base. And so all the ISVs went and wrote software for Windows. The other point, of course, was that Apple's proposition was it's simple and easy and beautiful and it's easy to use. But the market was CIOs. It was hobbyists. And then it was CIOs who wanted to buy 5000 at a standard price and didn't care how easy it was to use because it was going to run, run one application and the user was never going to open the box. So Microsoft had product market fit and, and Apple didn't have 
know, product market fit. The stuff they were selling was not what the market wanted. They locked themselves out of all of the economies of scale in the industry. Whereas now look at smartphones. Apple uses all the common industry standards underneath the operating system. They didn't design the radio. They were using all the industry standards in the same way that the PCs were in the 90s. Apple wasn't trying to make the whole thing and invent ARM. They rode on all of those industry standards. So they weren't making the mistake on the hardware side that they were making in the 80s and 90s. Meanwhile, on the product side, the customer was the consumer. The consumer wanted something that was simple and easy to use. So the Apple proposition actually hasn't really changed since 1984. It's just that the customer changed and the market got so much bigger that then you had the scale that then later on Apple could support Apple going in and making its own chips and you know, making all of its own components. And sorry, I could do a more kind of systematic, coherent explanation of that, but there's two basically kind of crucial point here. Some layers are always closed and some layers are always open. Like Intel was closed, Windows was closed at some layers and open at other layers. And secondly, what was the market trying to buy? Why was it a massively fragmented PC industry with sort of white answer in the 90s? in the 80s. Why was it that the massively fragmented PC market was not the right answer? And so you have to go beyond just saying open and say which bits are open and which bits are closed and why is that producing a better product or not? Is that what the consumer is buying? or not. So this is a very long answer to your question, but technology does tend to suffer from ideology, tend to confuse like an industry dynamic with morality. Yes. There are some cases in which a, a closed system will work, will produce a better product. And there's some cases in which an open system will produce a better product and have better economies of scale. And that's not a moral question. And even if you think it is a moral question, you still have to understand, yes, but why would the open system win? But why was it that Linux beat Microsoft in the data center, but not on the desktop. And it was open. The data center wanted an open operating system and the desktop didn't want an open op, didn't want that kind of open operating system. But on the desktop, Windows was open. In the enterprise, it wasn't. In the, in the data center, it wasn't. So you have to think about those layers of abstraction and kind of try and separate what's the morality here from what's the mechanics of how this stuff works. If I were to think about this, it doesn't matter what the market size really is. You will still have two players exist. It just depends on these different layers you talk about how when the different players are actually involved, they actually open it up. It could be two players, it could be three players, it could be as many as possible, depending on the circumstances and such. Well, so I think it depends on lots of things. Clearly, the PC industry in the early 80s, you could compare this with cars, because the early days of cars in like 1910s, cars are actually pretty simple things. There's hundreds of people making cars. There are literally hundreds of car companies. The same thing in the 20s and 30s, there are hundreds of aircraft companies, because an aircraft is actually not a very complicated thing. You know, in fact, very often aircraft companies and car companies were the same companies. I mean, this is why Rolls-Royce was a company that made cars. So they made engines. And now those are two completely different businesses. It's the same thing Saab made cars and aircraft. So if I were to take that same thinking and then extrapolate to that industry. Well, so it's, what I was going to say is, is in development of this industry, where mm. it's actually very simple and very cheap. Or some industries, right. you think is very simple and very cheap. When cars began, when aircraft began, they were very simple and very cheap. When PCs began in the late 70s, early 80s, they were very simple and very cheap. The Apple one was just a circuit board. All the components are off the shelf. Over time, as the thing matures, there's all this other stuff that it has to do and becomes much more sophisticated, much more complicated. The company begins to become much bigger. The product gets more making. The barrier to entry creating the thing goes up massively. 
And yeah, there aren't a hundred car companies now, because if you want to make cars, well, just designing the headlight cluster is like $50 million, which is why Tesla was the first car company to be created in 50 years, because it's really expensive to make cars now. It was not in the 1910s, basically bicycle companies started making cars because it was cheap. The same thing with PCs in the, in the early eighties, it was easy to make a PC. Now it's not same thing. The point is that in the early days, the market is small. But the product is cheap and simple. Then happens is the market gets much bigger, but the product is really expensive to make. So you have many smaller participants, even though the market has become much bigger. But what then may happen, which is what happened when we went from PCs to smartphones, is that the market becomes so much bigger that you can then have more players again. So for the PC market, Microsoft and Intel won. Apple almost disappeared. And only just managed to cling on in a very small set of niches around the edges and almost went bust. But basically Apple died. All practical purposes, Apple was dead when Steve Jobs went back. And because the market with certain had become big enough that you needed all these economies of scale. When we go to smartphones, the market becomes so big that you can be the 25% player and still have massive scale. Do you see what I mean? There were those, I mean, I've already thought about Yeah, this. yeah else has made this point, but there are these three stages. Stage one, small market, simple, but, but simple product. Stage two, big market, but expensive barriers to entry. Stage three, vast market. And actually maybe now you can have two or three participants again. That, that's a better way of thinking about it than what usually how simplistic most people think about this iOS versus Google. If I were to think about cars then, so there are a lot of car makers and there's Tesla. Uh, mm. What stops maybe Apple someday coming into the car business or even Google coming into the car business? What would be the set of questions that I would ask to say, this is a new trend that's going to be emerging for the car industry. That means self-driving cars, energy. This is wicked, wicked. And I was talking about this. So mm. the good framing here is that Tesla bulls think that Tesla is a software company and Tesla bears think that Tesla is a car company. So a couple of axioms to state. First of all, there's electric and autonomy, and those are completely separate things. You can have an autonomous diesel truck. Secondly, electric is not about replacing the, the fuel tank with a battery. It's that you rip the spine out of the car. It's that you don't have a transmission system. You don't have a gearbox. You don't have differential. You don't have a transmission shaft. You go from having several hundred moving parts to having 10 or 20 or 30 moving parts. And so that's a big change. It's a change for the supply base. If your business is making machine tools to make gearboxes, you've got a big problem. It's a change to say large scale industrial manufacturing processes because the whole like dynamic of the car industry has been to narrow in on a very small number of platforms on which you produce. So car industries, when they say a platform, what they mean is we've got this platform and then we make 10 cars based on that underlying chassis and drivetrain. Now you've got to have a new platform. But our manufacturing efficiency has been about optimizing your manufacturing process to make this one basic platform or some relatively small number of basic platforms with a lot of shared parts. As we go to electric, you've got to have another whole production line. What's the optimal way of shifting your production, managing that transition, adding electric to the existing platform versus creating a completely new platform. So there's a lot of engineering and manufacturing optimization challenges for an existing car company in making that transition. Second building block is battery prices are the main cost in an electric car. Battery prices do not have cost parity with an ICE, which is why you don't have 20,000 pound electric cars. The car industry is investing tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, but has not shifted completely to making electric cars, A, because of that transition point I made, and B, because you can't really make money selling electric cars yet. 
certainly not unless you're selling them at super premium prices while skimping on all the components in the internals and so on. And if you get into a Tesla, it's a $100,000 car, but you sit inside and shut your eyes, it feels like a $20,000 car. And there's a reason for that. That's partly Tesla is learning how to make cars, but partly because they skimp and save on every other cost. So that's a question. Then the next question is, why was it that BlackBerry with a Nokia and Palm were so completely unable to react to the iPhone? And the answer, or some of the answer is, that they weren't competing. If you look at the iPhone and say, this is a phone that's got a big touch screen and an app store, you're completely missing the point. The iPhone was a Mac. Previously, all of the products that are on the market were basically conceived in the late 90s and early 2000s based on extreme constraints on bandwidth, memory, processing power, combined with an assumption about what the battery life had to be and how durable it had to be. That got you to a Palm Nokia Series 6 and a BlackBerry and a Nokia Series 60. And the iPhone comes along and says, no, it's a Mac. It's not a phone with a color screen. So it's running a real operating system. It's actually a real PC. An iPhone is basically a PC with a different user interface and a different form factor. It's a small laptop. It's not a phone with stuff added to it. It's a completely different product in every way that you've built it. It also has these totally different assumptions, which is it doesn't matter if you drop it and it doesn't matter if the battery only lasts a day because of all the stuff that you can do if you accept that trade-off. And in 2000, you wouldn't have been able to do anything worth that trade-off. In 2010, you could. That meant that for Nokia to compete with the iPhone, it wasn't that they had to make a better touch screen. It was more like a shipbuilding company having to get into airliners. It was just a completely different product in every possible way except that you might use the same factory. That transition was extremely difficult. As we know, none of the companies that were participants in the phone business in the early 2000s are still in the market, except Samsung, which is a marginal player back then. Nokia, Ericsson, Motorola, Siemens, Alcatel, almost everyone's out. And a few of the marginal players back then are still hanging on, like Sony and so on, but basically everyone's gone. So then you look at cars and you think, okay, is that what, is that what happens? Is it that this is a fundamentally different product that looks superficially similar? Yes, it makes phone calls, but it's not a phone. Yes, it's got four wheels, but it's not a car. All the questions become software questions. I'm actually skeptical that's what actually happens. Because I think that this is still actually a scale manufacturing story in which the software, quote unquote, is really firmware. The thought experiment here is people always look at Tesla and say, but you've got this great screen and they push new stuff out to you and it's so cool. The navigation system is so much better. And I think so if that Tesla dashboard was all there, but it was running internal combustion engine inside, would anyone be excited about Tesla? And the answer is no. Therefore, that's not the bit that matters. Well, bit, the bit that matters is the electric. And the people, the reason people really love Tesla is you press the steering wheel, like, holy fucking shit, it goes to 0 to 60 in two seconds. Well, that's not Tesla. That's electric. You don't need to put gas in it. Oh yeah, that's not Tesla. That's electric. And so this is my point. The bull would say, no, it's software. And the car companies won't learn software. I have no problem with the thesis, the car companies will suck at software. The question is, yes, but is that the bit that matters? Mm. Or are you still basically making a car? Because an iPhone was not a better BlackBerry, but I think that a Tesla is just a better car. So the question is, if you know, Apple could go and make a better Tesla, it's just money. You know, there's not some conceptual breakthrough or some science there. It's just hard. It's engineering. 
but you don't need to have some brainwave or uncover some new science or invent something new. It's just time and money. And it's also, of course, the question of, well, who physically makes it? Because you don't have quite the same kind of contract manufacturing ecosystem that you had for consumer electronics when the iPhone appeared. That's a car industry conversation. Who would make this thing if Apple is, obviously Apple isn't going to build their own car plants. For the sake of argument, so Apple makes it a better Tesla where bits don't fall off if you drive down the road and it doesn't have panel gaps. Okay, fine. So what? Because the iPhone wasn't just a better BlackBerry. The iPhone was a fundamental reconceptualization of what is this thing? And so if all Apple does is make a car, electric car with a nice dashboard and better seats, so what? There has to, what, there has to be some problem that isn't being solved. And Apple sensibility would solve that problem. The only thing I can think of there is this whole conversation around you've got a level two slash level three car in which it can drive itself a little bit sometimes, but you've got to be awake with your eyes on the wheel and your hands on the steering wheel at all times. That is a user interface problem, or some of that is a user interface problem. Reinventing this sense of is it driving itself or not, what does that mean? It's the kind of problem that Apple likes to solve. The challenge, of course, is if, on the other hand, you had a fu an actual fully self-driving car, which nobody has yet, certainly not Tesla, not anybody else, and it's quite possible that's 10 years away or 20 years away or 50 years away. But if you actually had a car that didn't have a steering wheel, that's not an Apple kind of a problem either, because you get into the car and you say, take me home, and it takes you home. Well, that's maybe a Google kind of a problem, but it's not an Apple kind of a problem, because there's no user interface. There's no complexity that they need to hide to you and just show you the one important thing. It's all happening. It's all being done by this. It's not that they're hiding the complexity. It's that you don't even need to know about it. You feel what I mean? That if they just made a Tesla with a self-driving, that would be completely pointless. Making a car that has full autonomy is not currently possible. Making a car somewhere in between where you can understand whether or not it's driving itself does feel like the kind of problem that Apple likes to try and solve, but that just presumes that they've worked out how to solve it. If I were to switch tech and say digital transformation for enterprises, because I have now been on both the buy and sell side, I often explain to people, everyone loves transformations, but they get to change. Many years ago, I remember people used to say, nobody gets fired for buying IBM. Something changed. Now nobody gets fired by filling the blanks cloud or AI vendor. How does generational shifts in software happens for enterprises? Can we identify the turning points typically when businesses want to shift with the technology available, whether it's on-prem to cloud, automation to mass customization with machine learning? I was fascinated by this phrase, digital transformation, because it sounds like a parody of worthless enterprise software marketing. It's like I saw a billboard for an IT outsourcing company that said, we're building a digital world. That wasn't a parody either, but that's what the digital transformation sounds like. It just sounds like marketing bullshit. But what it actually means in the 60s and 70s, big companies use mainframes. They adopted mainframes. Then in the 80s and 90s, they adopted client-server and ultimately Windows, Oracle, and SAP. That was a really fundamental change, not just in what the IT people were doing all day, and who you were paying and that you were buying IT servers instead of renting mainframes or as well as renting mainframes maybe, but it actually changed the kind of software you could buy. And in fact, it changed before that there were no software companies. You couldn't make a so software company in the mainframe world. You had to sell, it was all about the hardware and the software came with it. That was just how it worked. But it changed what it created the idea of a software company. It also meant that there was massively more software and you could have 50 different companies software running on your data center. And of course, that then enables all sorts of different ways of doing business. It enables just-in-time supply chains. Yeah. For the sake of argument, you can't do a just-in-time supply chain if you don't have a relational databases. So it's a crude way of putting it, but it enables a new way of doing businesses.
Now there's another transition, which is moving from your on-prem client server, big iron data centers to the cloud and SaaS. With that, a bunch of other technologies like machine learning. That's another of these big generational transitions, which is not just that you're renting space on AWS instead of buying your own boxes. It just changes how all software works and what software you can buy. And that in turn changes how you might be able to run your business. That again is like a multi-decade process because if you look at the market data, if you're in Silicon Valley, the cloud is like this old boring thing from 15 years ago, 10 years ago, but only as it might be 20 or 25% of Fortune 100 workflows are actually in the cloud. Everything else is still on client server or in fact still on mainframes. In fact, meanwhile, you go back another generation, IBM's install base of mainframes has never actually fallen. If you measure it in MIPS, in compute capacity, in fact, they sell more compute capacity every year. The total installed compute capacity has gone up every year since 1965. IBM shipped a record mainframe MIPS count in 2020. So they shipped more mainframes compute capacity in 2020 than in any previous year. If you're like applying to YC now, mainframes, you don't even know what that is. You'd have to like Google it and look up Wikipedia for mainframe. Yet they're still there in big companies, running big companies, doing big company stuff. In fact, very often there's a subset of mainframe install base that should probably move either to clients or to cloud and will probably now just move straight to cloud. There's another chunk where actually there's no compelling reason why you would do that because it's actually still the most efficient way of running that particular kind of a task. It's very good at that thing that you did then doing the billions of banking transactions say mainframe might be the best answer for that. Even today, it might be better than the GCP or AWS, but there's orders of magnitude, more computing stuff that happens now than happened in 1970. All of that new stuff will never be done on a mainframe and it will never be then again, it will never be done on client server. It will be on cloud in another 20 years, there'll be something else after cloud. That will be the, the generational transition. And so that I think is what is, I would understand by this phrase, digital transformation. The digital bit is funny because the old stuff was digital too. But there's this great slide from the presentation from Vodafone talking about what they're doing, which is world's biggest mobile operator outside the biggest international mobile operator. They've got, I don't know, half a billion customers or something, and they have two and a half million invoices a year because every base station is rent, power, probably tax, probably insurance. Every shop is rent and power and tax and water and everything else. They've got two and a half million invoices a year, and that's a thousand people sitting and processing those invoices. And yes, they're probably scanned in, but what would you do with that today with machine learning and automation and workflow and cloud and SaaS? You know, if you if all that was sitting in Oracle, in a database that was designed in 2005, probably in 2000, even maybe, what would you do with that now? And I think that's what, how I would understand this phrase digital transformation. So the way you presented in the article that I was reading was there are a few things with digital transformation. One is whether for a company to do a set of microservice, solving a set of workflows in a specific department industry, or maybe reorientate those workflows. And then there is also the network layer that captures the workflows of the ecosystem. Maybe it's like a contact center modernization, et cetera. Is that what people not realizing that's what they're doing in a digital transformation? That's what is pointed out in that article. So there's another completely different way of talking about this stuff. You've got your file, your Excel files or your Word documents, and then you say, we're going to move to the cloud. We're going to put them in box. Or maybe if you're really forward thinking, you say, no, we're going to move from Word to Google Docs. That's not really a change. That's adding a little bit to the previous generation. The change 
is when you say, why is it that we're producing these A4 formatted pieces of paper where the fonts matter? What is the actual task we're trying to do with these? Am I emailing you my memos? It's like saying, well, I'm going to, instead of me printing out the memo and putting it in the inter-office mail, I'm going to email you the Word document. And then you can print it out and read it. That, that's not really like a step forward. That's always what you do to begin with any new tool. You start by making the new tool fit the existing way of working. Over time, you change the way that you work in order to fit the new tool. The example I always give here is any big company, there's people who like every week or every two weeks, you download a bunch of data from your internal systems, say SAP or Salesforce into a CSV. And then you put the CSV into Excel and you sort and format and order it. Maybe you've got a carefully set up pivot table or something and some macros and you get charts. And then you put the charts into PowerPoint and then you email the PowerPoint to 15 stakeholders. And then there's an email conversation around it. One answer to this is we should put that PowerPoint in box or Google Drive. Another answer is no, instead of PowerPoint, it should be Google Slides. People could comment on it. People would always have the latest version. This is a dumb way of thinking about this stuff because what should actually happen is your internal system should be making the fucking status dashboard. There shouldn't be somebody downloading fucking CSVs every week. And so then the question is, well, why are you making the slides? It's not what's the right way to make the slides. Is there a better way to make the slides? It's why are you making the slides? What's the business purpose here? I've written a couple of pieces on this calling this new productivity, which is if you look at something like frame.io, which got all last month's for one and a quarter billion dollars. So frame.io is basically Google Docs for video. So if you think about people in the professional video industry, there's somebody sitting on a big PC with Avid or Final Cut making the video, say it's five minutes, whether it's five minutes or an hour or whatever it is, and juggling all these different clips. That's what they do. But there's a dozen or two dozen people who need to touch it and see it and comment and have a view on it. The way that works is you FedEx hard disks around, or there's a private link to a Vimeo or a private YouTube. And then you've got a, a table that says this time code, this comment to color correct this, clip out this, clip it two seconds earlier. Can we paint out that microphone, whatever it is. The dumb response to this is to say, yeah, let's move that table into Google Sheets. What frame.io does is it turns that whole thing into workflow with version tracking and commenting and annotation and you can draw a box around that thing on that frame and everyone can see it and comment and discuss. You capture the whole actual job in software. You both unbundle and rebundle. You unbundle Google Sheets and the file manager and Dropbox and you bundle it up into this new vertical model instead of a horizontal model. That's what I'm talking about when you say when you go to, you only do that when you move to SaaS. Well, theoretically, you could have made PC software that would do that. But actually, no, you fucking couldn't. That's what actually happens when you move to cloud. And it's the same thing that happened 25 years ago when you went from mainframes to 30 years ago, when you went from mainframes to client server, it wasn't that you had all the mainframe software, but now you own the boxes. It was actually had a fundamentally different kinds of software. If I were to think about that, then if I were to take the paradigm one step further, then when you go to say something like crypto or people say web tree or maybe something that augmented and virtual reality. There must be something that would allow these workflows to do the change. Is it the way how you unbundle and rebundle them that will actually get the killer app and then jumpstart it? Well, I'm puzzled by the uh, The challenge of VR is an open question right now. The open question is, we've got to the point now that we've got great consumer hardware. I mean, the Oculus Quest 2 is a great piece of hardware. 
you're not making excuses for it. It's not a beta. It's a great product. But what do you do with it that isn't a game? One answer to that would be looking at the PC in 1980. Moore's Law will take care of it. Power, particularly high resolutions, because text doesn't really work. If you had high resolution screens, you could have the whole room could be your workspace. You can have real presence and the avatars look real. And so it looks like you're really in a meeting. So Moore's Law will make it work for something other than games. That's one argument. The other argument is that didn't work for games consoles, didn't work for drones, didn't work for 3D printing. No, 3D printing is not a consumer product. And that isn't because of Moore's Law and wait for high resolution. There's no consumer use case for this. Same thing for drones. The problem with the consumer drone industry is not like the battery life sucks and you need better stabilization. It doesn't matter how good the drone is. What am I going to do with this thing? Everybody bought a drone at Christmas two or three years ago and flew it for an hour and thought, oh, this is cool. And it's been in the cupboard ever since. And the same thing for GoPro, incidentally. There was a brief moment where people thought everybody's able to get a GoPro. The bear case for VR is a subset of games consoles. And games consoles are a brilliant business, but it's a limited business. And if we had seen... And I'm coming at this backwards, but if you'd seen a PlayStation 5 in 1980, but even 1990, you would have said, oh my God, this is amazing. This is clearly going to be a huge part of the future. And that, and it is, but it's 150 million units, or 5 billion units. Even if you add in Steam and AAA PC games and so on, you get to maybe two or 300 million people. And that's a big thing, but it's not at the universal experience of the web or even the PC, let alone smartphones. And more people use Snapchat than play console games. Just Snapchat has more users than all console gaming. If you can only do games, what's the theory here? That if you become deeper and narrower, more specific than consoles, you're going to get a broader user base? No, it's a narrow user base. Fundamentally, VR is, at the moment, if VR is only deep and narrow, more intense games than games consoles, it's not going to be bigger than games consoles. It's going to be a subset of games consoles. Now, as I said, counter thesis is, yes, the better, wait for Moore's Law. That will fix it. That didn't fix games consoles. Better graphics didn't make games consoles a universal experience. It was still a specific niche, a, a segment experience. I think that's the question in VR. Is this the next thing or is, this, is it just a thing? AR has many of the same questions, but the other way around. Is this a universal experience or is it more like a watch? Is it basically a smartphone accessory? It's really hard to answer that because you can't even try the product. You can try the betas and the demos, but you can't I've try. I use Magic Leap. I've used the HoloLens. It's like saying how many people are going to use the mobile internet in like 1998. You don't really know what you mean or what the experience would look like. And into the 2000s, people thought that most people would still have a basic, what we would now call a feature phone. And the people who really did, no one understood that this would be a universal product the way that it became. So I want to switch the conversation to the never-ending war in app stores. But I want to ask a question after listening to your conversation in another podcast, what did you have been talking about? But Apple has been inconsistent with their app store rules, which actually lead to all the challenges that they have. The question I always have first is, how did all these inconsistencies arise and then evolve towards the current situation? Is it their own doing or is it just that no matter what you do, it's always going to lead towards this situation? That they are so, I don't know what the distribution of your audience is. So maybe nobody's ever heard of this, but I was reading the other day about what's called a Sabbath elevator. If you're an Orthodox Jewish person and you're on Sabbath, you're really not supposed to do any work at all. Work has become defined, meaning like you can't switch on a light. 
You can't turn on the stove because that's starting a fire. You can't do anything that could be interpreted in any way as work. You can't use an elevator, for example, because you would be making the motor do this work. That has given rise to what's called a Sabbath elevator or widget, Shabbat elevator, which is an elevator that automatically stops at every floor going up and going down. So you can get into it, but you're not pressing the buttons. This is something that, that you'll find in buildings in Israel. Now, of course, people get more intellectual about this and they say, yes, but when you're in the elevator and it's going up, the motor is still doing more work because it's lifting your weight. So maybe it's okay to go down in the Sabbath elevator, but not okay to go up in the Sabbath elevator. Maybe I should have been a lawyer because I find these kind of questions slightly fun to talk. Some of the app store rules has ended up like that, which is you start out in whenever it was a thousand BC and say, everybody should have a day where they don't do any work. You don't spend half an hour carrying water and you don't spend an hour making fire from sticks. That was where it started and where it ended up is, am I allowed to go in the elevator or not? What's happened for Apple is they started from this very simple position. If you are charging people for content in the store, you should use our payment mechanism because that's a better experience for the user than having 50 random things and asking for credit cards because we, we're going to make some rent from this because we, we're providing this platform. And then somebody says, okay, but what happens if I already got my customer somewhere else? And then somebody else says, Bloomberg is $2,000 a month. Do I have to offer a sign-up inside the Bloomberg app at 30%? And somebody else says this, and someone else says that, and somebody else says this. And there you are 10 years later, your nice, simple, straightforward principle that if you sell stuff in the app, then you have to pay has become 850 subparagraphs. You get these kind of bizarrely convoluted arguments about well, is a game in Roblox a game or is that a content experience? What the fuck does that mean? What's the difference between selling a level in Fortnite? Not that you can, but if you had a level store in Fortnite, how would that be different from selling a, 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 a game inside Roblox? What's the difference between a skin in Roblox and a skin in Fortnite? Of course, you get to these just really dumb, bad for everybody things where like, you can sell somewhere else, but you can't tell people that you can sell somewhere else. Of course, if you're Spotify, you don't have the extra margin to sell in the app store and give Apple 30% because you don't have 30%. And so Spotify can't sell in the store, but also can't tell you what to do. So you download the app and it says, okay, you're just going to need to an account, but we're not going to tell you how to get one or we'll, or we'll let you have a link to go and get one. And there's no basis that's good for anybody. What's happened is starting from this relatively straightforward and simple proposition, Apple ended up answering yes, but questions for 10 years and ended up with a mess. I think the second thing that happened is when the app store launched, it was a small business. It was maybe 5% of the US mobile phone base, maybe 5%, maybe 10%. I don't remember what the number was, but it was not 60%, which is where it is today. If you got 5% of the market, you could do whatever you like. You can kick people off the store. Antitrust lawyers don't have anything to say to you. When you've got 60% of the market and when you've got maybe 80 or 90% of teenagers, then a whole different set of rules apply. Apple was the pirates and became the Navy. I think that's the other thing that shifted is stuff that was fair play. If you don't like that, you use buy another phone in 2010. 
2020, actually, that's no longer an option. That's just a psychological shift. And that also applies to a lot of technology companies. That applies to a lot of the conversations around how Google treated Yelp. When you're a small player and you're scrambling for share, you can behave in one way. When you become the dominant player, there are new rules. Often there's a lag between the point that those rules start applying and the point that you realize those rules start applying. Shouldn't they rewrite the rules instead of trying to do patchwork on the current rules? It has gone to the point like in Japan and Korea, they are now imposing different limits on what the app store can do. So if they don't want to try to rewrite everything, they will just let everyone rewrite it for them, but for different jurisdictions. Is that where we're going to go with the app store now? So I wrote something about this, which I called stumbling towards a new app store model. It's a mess, as I'm sure you know, if you actually try and make a table of what the rules are, what's changed, where they've changed, what it applies to, what's still to come. No one in America was really paying attention to the Japanese thing. And it's like the Japanese thing only applies to reader apps, but Apple applied it globally. The Epic thing applies to all apps, but only applies in the US. The EU has still got a case pending on Spotify, and they've already said we think Spotify is in the right. It's just a question of what they do about it. But the EU is only 10% of App Store billings, maybe 10 or 15% of App Store billings. So it's a mess. Actually, a lot of people at Apple, formerly at Apple, think that Apple should stop temporizing and fiddling around the edges and shift to a fundamentally new model. Now, several interesting bits of detail in that. First of all, last year, I think Apple's commission was probably about $15 billion commission revenues. The total consumer spend on the store was about $65 billion because Apple gives this number at the end of every year of what the cumulative total is. So it's about $65 billion. So Apple's commission was probably $15 billion. That's 5% of revenue. So yeah, $15 billion is $15 billion, but like, it's still not a huge portion of Apple's revenue. If they were to say, clearly at some point, they're going to have to let people use alternative payment methods, but it doesn't mean that consumers will do that because the built-in payment system is always going to have better conversion and lower friction. So not all of it would move. All of these rules are basically good for big you know, games developers. They're not particularly good, useful for small developers that can't don't have the brand to get people to use a card. Then you've got, does the commission rate, should Apple change the commission rate? Should they change it to 15%, say, or 10%? If they did that, no one's going to use a card. Everyone will just use the Apple system. But then they ask, what happens if the EU says you have to allow people to replace the default payment system, which is quite different from allowing an app to ask for a different payment? What if Square can replace in-app payment across every app? That would be much more significant. Although, of course, you then you have to persuade people to install the Square app and give it permission to do that. That's something that hasn't really come up yet. I could perfectly easily imagine the EU proposing that. Meanwhile, no one has really talked about China. One of the statistics that came out of the Epic case was that half of the App Store revenue comes from 0.5% of the users who are paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month on candy corruption. That's a slightly weird contrast with all the stuff Apple says about mindfulness and healthy use of your phone and all this kind of shit. But all the stuff that Apple probably... A third of that is probably in China. And so here you've got the Chinese government saying the games are spiritual. How long do you think that Apple's commission is going to last in China? Like, why hasn't the hammer come down on that yet? I'm not a China analyst, but it feels like that's a pretty obvious next step from all the stuff that the Chinese government has been talking about. So all of which is to say, like, the old model is clearly going, but it's quite unclear what the new model would be and where it would look, where it would, how much that would affect Apple and how you can keep all the user benefits, which is I could install an app and I can know it's not going to break my phone or steal my data. And that's not true on Android.
So there's a lot of real user benefits to this stuff. They get hidden in all the ideology. We were talking about ideology earlier. There's a lot of ideology about this stuff. There's a lot of user benefit there. How do you keep that? Rather like advertising, which we haven't talked about at all. We know we're getting rid of the old model. We don't know what the new model is going to look like. Which comes to the advertising part. You have the destructions of cookies and then you have privacy coming to the internet in a big way. Apple has started to do since the Tim Cook era. You pointed it out that the industry is being confused about where it is heading. At least they do have some consensus on the issues. Where are they on the ads privacy situation? I think there's, there's a whole bunch of different challenges here. How can I put this? We know the cookie-based targeting model is going away, but the actual business purpose of this was not that people spy on you. It's that people showed nappy ads to people who have babies and don't show them to people who don't. And knowing which ads resulted in people buying nappies and which didn't. That doesn't seem to me to be fundamentally evil or even necessarily to conflict with privacy. And so one strand is, you know, if there's a way that we can do that, you can reconcile those because there's a lot of fundamental conflict there. The second, but can you do that without gifting control of the ad ecosystem to either the browser maker or the operating system maker, either Google or Apple or both? And so there is always this fundamental conflict between privacy and competition and security. Second, if we just get rid of cross-site advertising or cross-site targeting, then the people who can do targeted advertising are Google, Facebook, the New York Times. So it's people who big site where all the stuff is happening on their site. So it's not being shared between different companies. All things be equal. It's a problem for Facebook and Google, but they'll survive better than everybody else. One of the things I like about the article you wrote on is that you've broken down the confusion into these three key questions that simplifies the conversation. I'll just summarize it. So the first is, can you achieve the underlying economic aims of online advertising in a private way? The second is, what counts as private? How can you build private systems if we don't know? And the third is that the competition between the proposals of privacy versus the competition yeah. Competition proposals on KBW. Ending up with no consensus. So we have this kind of interest yeah. philosophical questions. Apple clearly has this idea that if it only happens on your device and never leaves your device, then that's private. Yeah. I don't know why that's private. <laughs> and Apple, working on this basis, built this system that would scan device images being uploaded from your phone for child abuse content on the phone rather than in the cloud. They thought that was more private and a lot of other people thought that was less private which is to the point, we don't have a clear consensus of what counts as private. The same thing for this cross side thing, like the New York Times can know I'm a login user. I've read 15 articles about holidays. You can show me an actual holiday. Why can't the New Yorker know that I've read 15 pieces about travel on the New York Times and you show me an ad for a holiday? And the answer tends to be that's not private and that's not an answer. Why is it not private? And the answer tends to be because it's not private. Rather than actually, what do you mean by private exactly? Why is it okay for the New York Times to do that, but not for the New Yorker to do that? Then you get the ultras, so to speak. You say, oh, the New York Times shouldn't do that either. In which case, their huge piece of investigative journalism doesn't have an, and you can only target based on context. You can't target based on the user. Then all the expensive investigative journalism that the New York Times does has no advertising on it. So they do a big piece about Trump or Iran or whatever, and it gets a million views and there's no ads because no one wants to advertise on that because there's no content. They can't target the, the user or the ads are very low value. So there's a lot of, you can say privacy, but that's a question, not an answer. Mm. What do you mean by private? What counts as private? How do you build a more private system when we don't agree what would count as private and where Apple thinks it does it? People say this is a huge privacy violation. 
what do you mean? Even if you agree, okay, if it's only inside one company, then that's private, which again, makes no sense to me as a statement. But if you decide that, well, then that means you're just gifting all the money to big companies who've got lots of internal use and can analyze it. Which again, we you've got your, your conflict between privacy and competition. Correct. What you're saying here is this, right? If the data can be shared, it still doesn't solve the privacy concern. It, should they be just disintermediated as two separate things rather than being conflated into one, which is why most of the confusion on advertising really comes about here. Because there's yep. no problem showing me Coca-Cola ads and Toyota ads. They overlap a great deal because clearly to do relevant advertising, to show you the ads if you've got a child and not if you don't have a child, I need to know something about you. Either I only show it on a story about babies or I need to know something about you or need to know that you're interested in babies. Of course, if you only show it on stories that are about babies, then investigative journalism doesn't have any ads. So that's also a problem. <laughs> Meanwhile, there are other reasons why I want to know stuff about you, which is basically to make the product better. The classic, like the canonical Google example here is, I go to Google and I search for Taj Mahal. Should I be shown the mausoleum outside Delhi or... Should I know that it's a Friday night on Brick Lane in East London, in which case I should probably show you the curry house. That's not actually an advertising question at all. It's a product question. I open Instagram. I follow lots of architects and interior designers. And so therefore the discover tab is full of other images of architecture and interior design. That's not advertising. That's just product. Product is better if it knows something about who I am and what I'm interested in. Mm. And as I said, there's like a Venn diagram here. And yes, clearly advertising is part of it, but it's not the only part. What are the best mechanisms for ensuring that we have our privacy? So the one that you give was very clear is disclose what you're doing and get consent. That's usually the model, right? Nowadays, I go to a lot of sites, they ask me, do you want to accept all cookies? Just press through that. So this is like a basic fallacy. Mm. You have a bunch of actually quite complex stuff and you're going to expect the user to manage it. This is like the Linux fallacy that users should be able to choose what file system. Users should be able to tell, say, which USB port am I going to plug my printer into? No, the computer should know that. When you make those controls transparent to the user, the users don't use them. And they don't understand what they mean. They shouldn't have to understand what they mean because you've got a whole bunch of actually really technical questions that a normal person shouldn't have to understand. That's not, it's not their job to have to know how does a file system work. They bought a computer. They want it to work. You went to a website. I shouldn't have to know what your revenue model is. I shouldn't have to know whether, which targeting system you're using in order to show me ads roughly relevant to me or not. And so the result is that you get these choice screens with a million switches. What you're doing is you're training people to go and find the yes button. So it's completely counterproductive, but it's based on this fallacy of thinking that you should give users massive amounts of technical information based on your preoccupations, based on what they're actually trying to do. You get that with the cookie screen. But the other side of this is you look on an iPhone until iOS 15, there's a privacy setting. Apple is doing on-device tracking and analysis of your behavior, and they don't ask for permission or tell you because they think it's private because it's on the device. So the problem here is if you're going to say, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing, but I'm doing an awful lot of stuff all the time. So what does that mean? You go to a website, and this is the absurdity of these cookie screens. I had to write the privacy page for my website. I, I decided I needed to have 500 words saying Squarespace knows what your IP address is. Squarespace knows what browser you're using. That's the, that's how the internet works. When you say, well, you should just tell people what you're doing and ask them for consent, 
that's like the most alien statement for somebody from Apple to make because Apple doesn't tell you what the fucking fault system is. So can I just ask this really offhand question? Is the wall garden the cause that why we can't have privacy and digital advertising at the same time? Because you can't allow the sharing of data. You must be big enough in order everyone within the system able to learn things about you, like Facebook, for example. Theoretically, you could have a system that would show that would know that this web browser, let's be specific, it's not a person, it's a web browser. Basically, you could have a system that would know that this web browser has looked at lots of pages about babies. Somebody who wants to show ads to people about babies, show them this. The advertiser wouldn't know. The publisher wouldn't know. They would just know we got shown a relevant ad. The publisher wouldn't even know what ad had appeared. And the browser would be making that decision and inserting the ad. The operating system would be making that decision or inserting the ad. Now, this is not quite how the system works. So Flock actually says this person's interested in babies. Show them a baby ad. Apple system doesn't do that. The device knows you're interested in babies and shows you a baby ad, but Apple doesn't know. The publisher doesn't know. Nothing except the device knows. So theoretically, yes, of course you could do. But then, of course, the question is, well, it depends what you mean by privacy. Because if you accept Apple's definition, it's happening on the device and nothing except your iPhone knows that you're interested in babies. Is that private? If the answer to that question is yes, then that's private. But it's always a definitional question. It's like saying, does my dog love me? Define love. Don't ask me, it's very easy to say how my dog feels about me. The hard part is saying, but does that count as love? My dog, you know, she thinks my wife, we're, she probably thinks we're family. She feels mm. safe, happy with me. She's glad to be with me. Mm. She trusts me. She's pleased to see me. Is that love? That's not really a scientific question, is it? It's the okay. same. I can describe how Flock works and I can describe how Apple's ad targeting works. Is that private? I, I don't know. Maybe. That's not really an engineering question. So I have a left few question to ask. I haven't heard you talk about it. It's relating to the crypto industry. The crypto industry always touts that Web3 will solve the ads and privacy issues with a blockchain doing this poor man's model of Google crypto search. So imagine a user doing a crypto version of search with a search token, he gets paid as part of the proof of work consensus. The advertisers pay the protocol to distribute the ads by virtue all the informations of the advertising is actually governed by smart contracts, censorship resistance and maintain privacy. As we have learned through history, every new technology will have unintended consequences. Mm. Do you think that the crypto model is one of these models that will resolve the conflict between ads and privacy? Or is it just going to create much more problems than we didn't think about? Well, this is all very theoretical and determinist at the moment. And it's like saying, we'll open some mm. sort of problems at Microsoft. Some of them may be and some of them not. There's no utopia. Technologies and new systems solve some problems and create other problems. I want to examine that as a thought experiment. Let's say in an alternative history, blockchain was discovered and then people did this version instead of the Web2 version of the search engine. Would that have worked or maybe it's just providing us a different set of answers. This goes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is we'll define open. Everything's open at some, which layer of abstraction? <laughs> yes, theoretically, you could build tw a Twitter type product on a blockchain. That would solve some questions and create new questions. How do you deal with market failure? When we look at Facebook at the moment, all the kind of questions around harmful content, there's this whole narrative that says that the problem is the internal incentives are all messed up and fixing this stuff will spoil people's bonuses. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not. Presume for the sake of argument, it's true. Okay, now imagine you'd built Facebook in such a way that all of those incentives were baked into code and the people getting bonuses had votes on whether you changed it. And the Russians had votes on whether you changed it. The Macedonian spam farmers had votes and tokens in the system and could vote against changing it. How does that solve the problem? It solves some problems. 
but what it creates a whole bunch of new ones. Because if now you've made a system where all the incentives are aligned with the users, that solves a set of problems around like Facebook screwing developers. But it doesn't solve a problem whereby you actually need to fundamentally change how the system works. Not when everybody or most of the actors' incentives are to keep the existing system, even though it's breaking stuff and not working. Then it's just a tragedy of the problems problem. It's what economics textbooks call market failure. You could very easily have a situation in which it was clearly the right thing to change the incentive structure, but your system was set up so that you couldn't change the incentive structure. Do you think in 10 years' time, where we have this conversation again, it is still the same set of questions we are asking philosophically? Maybe some problems can be solved by some workflows and not all. And then we just have to make the trade-off for that. So I wrote a piece a few years ago thinking about what happened in smartphones. And the point that I made was that imagine in 2000, you'd been trying to do, you were very clever and you accurately predicted what was going to happen. What would you have said? Well, you said, okay, it needs to be a real computer with a real PC class operating system in these unlimited bandwidths. It will be the full unrestricted open internet. The portals will have no role. The telcos will have no role. AOL will have disappeared. This company, most of you have never heard of called Google, the internet. You could have said, okay, and therefore Moore's law tells you all that will take until about 2010, which is all that's what happened. A, no one was saying that. And if you'd said it, no one would have believed you. And even if you'd said all of that, you would never have predicted it would be Apple and Google that would control the whole thing. Or Facebook, because Facebook didn't even exist. And so even if you liked the whole thing, you still wouldn't have got it. Or you wouldn't have got like the last 10% that was where all the money and the control was. You'd have thought it would be Microsoft and Nokia. Or maybe Sun. You know, or maybe Adobe. But you wouldn't have put Apple in there. And not in 2000. You can have like directionally what's going to happen without really knowing like actually what it's going to look like. Now you can say directionally, yes, everyone will have a mobile computer in their pocket. But in 2000, everyone thought that was going to look like iMode. That was the only place where it was working. And iMode turned out to be a complete blind alley. There's a maybe a final observation, and we talked about cars a little bit earlier, that there's some industries where 10 years time is the next product cycle. There's some industries where you know what your rent's going to be in 10 years time. There's other technology, 10 years is right on the edge of science fiction. You really don't know what, you know, anything beyond 10 years, you really don't know what's going to happen. Except there'll be more stuff. Now, that seems to be a very good place to end the conversation. But Benedict, many thanks for coming on the show. I think this is probably one of the most philosophical conversations I have on tech. I really enjoyed it. So in closing, first of all, any interesting book, articles, podcast, movies, or something that inspire you recently? I don't know. I, don't, I just read everything. I read lots of stuff, most of it not about tech. So I'm just always trying to be curious about stuff that I'm not. I'm always trying to work out what questions am I not looking at. What was the one book that you read that is not in tech? Oh, I read a book about Chicago in the late 19th century. The industrialization of Chicago is this routing path for agricultural industrial products all the way through late 19th century America and how it's the role that it played in things like grain elevators and refrigerated railway cars. That was fascinating. Nature's Metropolis. Yes, that was it. Chicago in the Great West, nature's metropolis. Interesting. How do my audience find you? Google me. My parents had good SEO. <laughs> okay. Um, many thanks for coming on the show. You can definitely find a podcast through a Google search everywhere. You, you can look for us there. And of course, once again, thank you so much, Bendik. And we'll have another conversation sometime when the time is right. <laughs> right. Good to speak to you. Cheers. Bye.